Amen. What a wonderful hymn. What a wonderful morning of worship. And let's continue in worship now as we hear uh, the word preached. If you have your Bible, open up to 2 Samuel chapter 1. 2 Samuel chapter 1. Right at a year ago, uh, I think a year ago last Sunday, we started 1 Samuel uh, here, a sermon series called Dominion and Dynasty. And we took a, a long hiatus uh, between 1 and 2 Samuel, but now it's time uh, to finish the story. And so uh, I'm, I, I think if you wanted to go back and listen to some of the sermons, if you missed them from First Samuel, it was a really fruitful study. But uh, the story continues and the story is no less beautiful and no less gripping in Second Samuel as well. So I look forward to um, digging deep into this wonderful book of the Bible with you over the next uh, weeks and months. If you have your Bibles open there to 2 Samuel chapter 1, uh, it's page 349 of the Pew Bible if you don't have a Bible. I want you to go ahead and stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. The author writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God Himself is speaking to you. We're beginning in verse 17. And David lamented with this lamentation, over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, It should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Let's pray together. Oh God, would you open our hearts and minds to receive your word today. And God, I pray we would be changed by it. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. God looks for strange things in a leader. And therefore, the people of God ought to look for weird things, strange things in a leader. You see, the world's a little different. The world expects a certain amount of bad behavior out of a leader. Often, the world tolerates it. And, but in some senses and in some contexts, 
Bad behavior is even celebrated among leaders. But we recognize God has a different set of expectations. Therefore, His people ought to have a different set of expectations. What is it that God's looking for in a leader? What is it that God's looking for in His King in the text at hand? And therefore, what is it primarily that Christian people, at least in Christian context, ought to primarily look for in a leader? God is looking for, and therefore we are looking for, godliness. Godliness. It's the strangest thing about 1 Samuel. The strangest thing about 1 Samuel is that Saul was not that bad of a leader by the world's standards. Saul was not that bad of a king by the world's standards. In fact, over and over, the author of 1 Samuel, and now you see David even, goes out of his way to demonstrate to us that Saul did a pretty good job. Saul did what the people hired Saul to do. Not always perfectly, don't mishear me. Not always perfectly, even by worldly standards, but by and large, a pretty good job. I think he could easily run for re-election. And yet what was missing is something that's weird to anyone who is simply interested in statecraft. Anyone who's simply interested in the economy, being clothed in luxurious fabrics made of scarlet. Of scarlet. Uh, something that's strange to anyone who just wants to live safely uh, away from Philistines and, and wor- not worried about Philistine raids. It's godliness. That is, integrity before God. A God-centered, God-purchased, God-created Integrity is what godliness is. It's to act like the Lord would have us act. Integrity. When First Samuel closed out, the long uh, of the story there, the long and the short of it is that First Samuel is the story of how David ultimately became king in Israel. But at the end of First Samuel, at the end of the story, when we last left off, David was in exile exiled from the kingship, exiled from his people. And the king of Israel, Saul, and his son Jonathan had died in battle. We saw this building and building over time, this horrible thing. God had rejected him and said that his line would be cut off. And and Saul had descended into madness and he had cut David off from the land. And even though David had already been anointed as king, we, the readers, knew David would one day be king of Israel. But we are left in limbo as the story is told King Saul had fallen upon his own sword, we learn in the last chapter of 1 Samuel, to avoid mistreatment by the Philistines. But now as we transition from 1 Samuel, the beginning of the story, we now go into 2 Samuel, and it begins to give us a picture of the story of the rise of King David. I, I do want to remind you, I'm preaching these two books together because originally this was one story. Um, it's divided up now because we received it on two scrolls. But ultimately it was meant to be a singular story. Scrolls just couldn't be long enough uh, for both to be on one. And so we received it as First and Second Samuel. No harm, no foul. Except just to remember that this is a singular story. All of this is meant to show us a picture of the story of the rise of David as king of Israel. Now I want you to know that part of what the author is trying to do, and this is part of what I mean by the strange things that God looks for, part of what the author is trying to do 
in these books, in these chapters, is to demonstrate to us the innocence of David in becoming king. Uh, The innocence of David in becoming king. He did not, the author wants us to know, become king by conventional means. But instead, he is demonstrating to us that he had integrity before the Lord as he rose to power. That is, he did not do all the typical things that kings do when they rise to power. We all recognize there are just sometimes, if you want to rise to power, things you have to do, right? Things make you uncomfortable. You want to make an omelet, you got to break a few eggs. You know what I mean? David, and the author is trying to show us that David did not participate in these things. He walked before the Lord with integrity, even as he became king, and even in circumstances that someone easily could have said, well, David just had him killed, or David did this, or David did that. The story and the record of Israel wants to make it clear that David's kingship emerged with integrity. And it's to that topic we turn our attention today. I want to show you three truths this morning about integrity before the Lord that I think will help you grow in godliness. That three ways that the author, I think, is highlighting David's integrity that will help each of us here today grow in godliness. I'm going to show you three points about integrity today. Here's the first. Integrity trusts God's justice. Integrity trusts God's justice. David had been out, we learn a few chapters back in 1 Samuel, David had been out fighting the Amalekites um, and had done a pretty good job of it, if we're being honest, and yet he is in dire straits. Um, He was beginning to be sniffed out by the Philistines where he was hiding, Um, and of course he was persona non grata in the court of the king. He'd been expelled from his own nation, Israel. David, as we will see over and over again, is a patriot. He believes in the cause of Israel. He believes in the cause of the Lord. And so it's a difficult place in which David finds himself living. But the action picks up almost immediately. David had returned from striking down the Amalekites and he was there at Ziklag and A few days in, a man shows up coming from Saul's camp. And as he comes in, the way he's dressed and his appearance makes it clear that he is in a state of mourning. He gives David terrible news. The people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son, Jonathan, are also dead. How do you know? David asks him. Now, I want you to pay careful attention to this young man's story. I want you to listen really carefully to what he says happened. The young man who told him said, By chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on a spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. It's an interesting way that this man is crafting the story, making it clear. As Saul asks him whether he's an Amalekite or not, or what nationality he is, we know, as we've seen elsewhere in stories in the Bible, someone who was an Israelite never dare, would never dare lay a hand on the king. And yet this man, an Amalekite, was willing to. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Now, 1 Samuel 
chapter 31 tells us about how Saul died. And these two stories are conflicting. Now, I want you to know, I don't usually typically deal with all these sorts of issues as they come up, but this one's important for me to talk to you about because this is an example of a way that sometimes people will say the Bible contradicts itself. And I think one of the errors, one of the reasons why that error is so popular is because these stories are split into First and Second Samuel. And so people assume this is a dual telling of the same story. But perhaps those of you who are familiar in some different ways with literature may understand the difference between an unreliable and a reliable narrator. There are some times when authors will intentionally introduce in, in a book or whatever else an unreliable narrator, someone who doesn't understand the way things really are. And here we have a sense in which the chronicler, the one who wrote First Samuel, would be considered to us a reliable narrator. That's the story as it should be understood. The second telling of the death of Saul is only out of the mouth of this Amalekite who seems to be trying to take advantage of the transition of power, to ingratiate himself to the new king, as we know, he calculates poorly. <laughs> he does not understand the way Israel works. Here he is telling the story to try and ingratiate himself to the new king, and he says by chance he happened to be right where Saul was. Now, isn't it interesting that just by chance this guy showed up at the most intense part of the battle? just so happens i don't know about you that's not where i wander to you know uh, you know i just woke up one day and I, there i was i was just kind of meandering about next thing i know i'm there in ukraine where the war's at no we don't do that we don't meander into those kinds of situations again you can see the way his story doesn't quite hold water this Amalekite, as he is lying to try to gain favor with the new king, says that he killed Saul and then brings to David these sort of spoils of war. Now, I will commend him for his shrewdness. He's being very careful in the way he handles this. He's, he's being very delicate in the way he handles this. Nonetheless, one might expect David to reward this young Amalekite for killing the king that stood in his path to the throne, right? In fact, who among us wouldn't expect or at least forgive David if he just saw Saul as expendable, right? I mean, he tried to pin me to the wall. He, he's been rejected as king. He's running the country in the ground. He, he's not fighting the battles he's supposed to fight. Things aren't going well. And on top of all that, I've already been anointed as king, and I am God's chosen king. Good riddance to Saul, we would expect David to say. I mean, can't you just hear that sort of being the way we would even talk, perhaps, about someone who had outlasted their usefulness? Instead of rewarding this young man, instead of bringing this Amalekite into his good graces, instead, what does David do? He has the man executed. Listen to what the Bible says in verse 16. David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying... I have killed the Lord's anointed. Now, whether David knew or not that he was lying is really beside the point in terms of his behavior at this point. What is David doing? He's meeting out justice because we do not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. We do not strike the king. Even if the king wants to be killed, we do not kill the king. How many times, my friends, did David have the opportunity to take what seemed like justice into his own hands? 
How many times did he have the opportunity to sneak up on Saul, to go to Saul in the camp and take his life there over and over and over again? David had those opportunities. And yet here when someone falsely claims to have to have meted out justice on Saul, David is consistent. You do not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Justice belongs to the Lord. David wouldn't have it. My friends, it's, rem- it's important that we remember that integrity trusts God's justice. There are no vigilantes in the kingdom of God. There is no such thing as taking vengeance into our own hands. There is no such thing as doing that. We trust the Lord to do what the Lord will do. And in one of his first acts, uh, essentially, one of his first kingly acts, David executes someone who justifiably deserves it for having murdered the king. My friends, we must trust God's justice if we are to be people of integrity. But second of all, integrity rejects hypocrisy. Now let me ask you all a question. How would you respond? How would you respond when your enemy loses? How do you respond when your enemy loses? And every single one of you right now needs to be very careful as you listen to this. And listen very closely because it's college football season. And even if you had been tempted to gloat or something like that when your enemy lost, you shouldn't do it because integrity rejects hypocrisy. When our enemies, in all sincerity, when our enemies lose, what do we like to do? I don't know about y'all. You know, I'll tell you something I like better. Sometimes, you know, it feels good, it's satisfying. When you say something, you feel like it's a wise thing to say and everyone says, you know what, I think you're right, I agree with you. That's enjoyable at times. Is anybody with me on this? You know, you kind of enjoy that. It's, it's nice to be listened to at times. You know what I like better? Saying I told you so later. <laughs> you do too. You love it. We enjoy that, don't we? When our enemies lose. <laughs> when, when people who wouldn't listen to us, when we get, when people who wouldn't listen to us realize they should have. Most of us want the opportunity to celebrate, to gloat. All of us want the opportunity to say, I told you so. But David is not involved in this story because of the politics or for power or just for David's sake. His view of the events that are happening, his view of what's happening here is shaped by the glory and purpose of God. And so David rejects the sort of celebration of the death of his king that we could easily justify, but it would unquestionably be unquestionably be hypocritical notice what he says here beginning verse 17 david lamented with his lamentation over saul and jonathan his son and he said it should be taught to the people of judah behold it is written in the book of jashar he said your glory o israel is slain on your high places how the mighty have fallen takes integrity it takes uh, security to call your former king, mighty. But he goes on, tell it not in Gath, a Philistine city, in fact, the one from which Goliath hailed. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. 
Now you'll remember part of the reason why we are where we are right now. Part of the reason why David is where he is right now is because the songs of the women of Israel reached the ears of King Saul. Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his ten thousands. And those very songs and David's reputation made it all the way to Gath. What better way to gloat? What better way to secure your power? What better way to show that you are the truer and better king than if those women in Gath and those women in Ashkelon write songs about how Jonathan and David, I mean, Jonathan and Saul died and those songs make it back to Israel? People start to look for a leader. But do you see how it would have been hypocritical for David to do this? Verse 21, You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. David can't bear to say the fact that David, that Saul was no longer anointed as king, and so he uses a little bit of wordplay. You would have oiled shields before battle, but here you see a little bit of a double meaning as David sings the song. Saul stripped of the kingship, Saul stripped of his glory, nonetheless called the glory of Israel, and David mourning it as such. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Do you see how hypocritical it would be for David to say it's good for the king to die when it's not David? but it's bad for the king to die when it is David. You see how hypocritical that would be if David's kingship is really rooted not merely in the simple sense of David wanting to be king, but instead is rooted in the plan and purpose and glory of God to bring His kingdom into the world, to bring a Messiah into the world, to bring a truly anointed one into the world, to anoint a Messiah and for that anointing to never leave. If that's really what David's about, do you see the way that as he sings this lament, do you see the way that he is rejecting hypocrisy? It would be so hypocritical at this point just to say, well, all that really matters is who's in power. No, no, David's rejecting that. Integrity requires a rejection of hypocrisy. Finally, third of all, integrity laments the lamentable. Third of all, integrity laments the lamentable. And sometimes I'm afraid for us, and as our society, even as Christians at times, sometimes I fear that we've lost the ability to lament. I, I fear sometimes that we've lost the ability to grieve with those who grieve. I want you to pay attention the next time something awful happens. I pray that something awful doesn't, but something awful will happen. We live in a fallen world. Remember back to the last time something awful happened. And you know what we do, right? We put on sackcloth and ashes and we mourn and we weep and we come together? No. That's not what we do. We used to do that, it feels like. Now what do we do? We get right down to arguing. We get right down to scoring points. 
We get right down to justifying our positions, to explaining how if folks would only listen to us, this kind of thing wouldn't happen. If people would only do things the way we do things, this kind of thing wouldn't happen. If people would only vote the way I vote, this kind of thing wouldn't happen. How easily could David have said, if only Saul had done this, if only Saul had honored and obeyed the Lord, if only Saul had done what he was called to do as king, if only Saul had listened to me when I was his advisor, if only Saul had continued to let me fight the battles of Israel instead of him going out and having to do it himself, if he'd let Jonathan and I handle this, I'm telling you, we were a two-man wrecking crew. We could have taken care of business. How easily could David have done those things? But instead, what does he do? He laments the lamentable by praising what is praiseworthy. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. In life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Can you imagine calling your enemy beloved and lovely? By celebrating good leadership, verse 24. You don't talk about how good the last guy was when you're ready to establish your own reign and rule. And yet, what does he say? You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Oh, and then he turns to his dearest friend in the world, Jonathan. And he says something here. He says, very pleasant have you been to me, my brother Jonathan. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. One great shame we have in the world we live in is the way everything gets romanticized and sexualized, and especially perhaps friendships among men. We talk a lot in our culture right now about the crisis of masculinity. And I think one of the things that we have robbed men of is the ability to show one another affection. And you see such a beautiful picture of this in the Bible. And immediately people's minds go to this being a clandestine homosexual relationship or something like that. When nothing could be further from the truth. These are two men who genuinely loved each other. Who were warriors together. And you can see the way that David over time has mixed relationships with the women in his life. Jonathan's own sister was taken from him. And yet the one constant that he's had. It's his friendship with Jonathan. And here you have this beautiful display of affection between friends. Brothers and sisters, integrity laments the lamentable. Sometimes the right thing to do is to stop and to mourn, to lament, to be sad for what was and for what could have been. You don't have to rub it in. We don't have to talk about, it would be better if they were like this, sad that it had to be this way. We don't have to say, I'm not a big fan of, but I'm sad to do. No, you don't have to do that. He doesn't gloat. He doesn't keep score. He does not erase the good that Saul had done. In fact, he amplifies and magnifies the good that Saul had done. There's no need to magnify and amplify at this point. The bad that had happened, the man was dead. A former friend. Something close to a father figure at one point for David. He does not erase the good that Saul had done, that he had done evil and wickedness. David says what must be said. He laments the lamentable. And he says what ought to be said. How the mighty have fallen. What a loaded statement. Brothers and sisters, Saul's integrity evaporated. 
what began as a hopeful, promising kingship eventually descended into wickedness and madness and finally suicide in a desperate moment. And we will see soon that King David, King David himself, sees his integrity evaporate over time as well. It doesn't remain as it should. And frankly, not a single person in this room can have perfect integrity either. Every one of us has probably been hit by at least one of these points and thought, I need to grow in this area. I can do better here. None of us can have perfect integrity. As you lament the lamentable in our fallen world, as you see the challenges that we're faced with in the world we live in, I can offer you only one hope. Not Saul, not Jonathan, not David, not me, not even you. A son of David. One whose anointing never ends. One whose anointing rested on him and continues up until this very moment. A priest forever, the author of Hebrews tells us. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the mighty one who fell for us in order that we might live, in order that his righteousness might be given to us. I give you our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our hope. Brothers and sisters, today, if you would live a life of integrity, I want you to know it can only begin. Truly, living a life of integrity can only begin with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether you've never done that or whether you've done that a long time ago, we still begin with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to offer an invitation this morning. If you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus for the first time, I believe if you will turn from your sins and repentance and Turn to God in faith through Jesus. You will be saved. I believe it with all my heart. He stands with arms open wide waiting to receive you into His family today. Second of all, you may be a believer and you may say, Pastor, I need to grow in integrity. Would you pray for me in this way? I'll be available for you right here. This altar is open for you or you can do business with the Lord right where you are. And finally, you may be looking for a church home. Oh, what a joy it would be for me today to talk to you about what it means to be a member here at First Baptist Church. After this prayer, I want to invite you to come. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for Jesus. Father, we thank you for the gospel. And God, we thank you for the hope it gives us even when things are bad, even when things are wrong, even when it's time to lament the lamentable. We thank you for the cross of Jesus.